Amen. I was also listening to the news this week, or um, at least a podcast that was talking about the news, and I heard about the Archbishop of San Francisco, uh, Salvatore Cordleone, which I think is kind of an interesting name, but he made news this week when he denied Nancy Pelosi Holy Communion in the Roman Catholic Church. He did so because of her beliefs on abortion. Now, we're not a Catholic church. I know I said earlier during Sunday school that I went to Catholic school for a little bit, but I'm not a Catholic. I'm not saying that this morning. But it has been interesting to watch this story play out. You know, he's not letting her take part in communion because she believes in abortion, because she believes in woman's choice concerning that matter instead of the sanctity of life. And she's believed this for years, and he has taken a stand to say that he's not going to let her take Holy Communion in her diocese where she's at. Now, you have to understand a little bit about Catholic teaching and leadership to understand why this makes sense. We believe that communion is a representation of the body and blood of Christ. They believe that it is the actual body and blood of Christ that they are partaking in. We know that they're symbols of grace, that they are pictures of grace, baptism and communion, The Catholics actually believe that these things add grace to you in their idea of works-based salvation. So again, we don't agree necessarily with Catholic teaching concerning communion. But what I've found to be most interesting about this story isn't necessarily the politics of it, but it's really been the response of people on social media and news outlets, things like that, saying, what right does the archbishop have to deny her of communion? That's not his job. Well, actually, that is his job. That's not his only job, but that's one of his major jobs to do, and it's a core tenet of Catholic doctrine. And while, again, I'm not Catholic, and I don't obviously agree with Bishop Corleone on everything, I do applaud that he was willing to take a stand on this position. And you know, as I was driving to the church this week, I was listening to this, and it reminded me a little bit of Micah. Ironically, it reminded me a little bit of what was going on in the book of Micah as I was studying Micah chapter 3. Now, again, Micah wasn't Catholic. I'm not even saying that the bishop is a Christian. But there are a lot of people in Micah's day who are telling him that he should stop preaching what he's been preaching. We've looked at that in the book of Micah. There's a lot of people that were telling him to be quiet, that judgment wasn't going to come. They didn't want to hear anything bad about their sin or what they'd been doing and that everything was going to be fine. There were people in Micah's day saying, is it really your job to tell us when we've done something wrong? You see, one of the issues, not just in Christianity today or in the Catholic Church, but just in society, is that sometimes we forget what people's jobs actually are. If someone were to come into this church and tell me that I shouldn't preach God's word or that it's not my job to tell people the gospel, well, that would be a lie. That is my job, to preach God's word, to share the gospel with others. And Micah, in his day, he was the voice of God proclaiming a message to lost people of coming judgments, of coming wrath that would come down from God because of sin. And he faced a lot of opposition in his day. He faced a lot of challenges Now, we know later in Scripture that people actually listened to Micah and that the nation somewhat repented, at least for a while. But part of Micah's responsibility and all the responsibilities God gave him, he was to be a bearer of bad news. And in our text this morning, we look at Micah's 
criticism, his analysis of the leaders in his day, of the political leaders, of the religious leaders, and he doesn't have very good things to say about them. And if you can imagine, Micah, who we said is from Morasheth, which is a small town, you could say that he's Micah and he's no one from nowhere, right? He's not from a very big town. He's telling the kings and the elders and the prophets and the priests that they've sinned, that they've sinned a lot, and because of that, judgment is going to come. And of course, people didn't want to hear that. But as we look at Micah chapter 3 this morning, there's one fact, there's one thing that stands out to me, and that is that God is better than all worldly leaders. You can't read Micah 3 and not realize and not think about how awful these leaders are, and we're going to get into that, how evil they were, how despicable they were, but also as we read Micah 3, we see that God is better than all worldly leaders. Now there's one other thing I want you to have in mind as you're reading Micah 3. It's not a very uplifting chapter. You know, at the end of Micah 2, we see judgment, but also that God's going to preserve the people of Israel. He's going to leave a remnant and that there's some hope. Well, there is no hope in Micah 3, at least when we read the end of verse 12. The end of verse 12 says that Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the Lord a wooded height. Those aren't exactly encouraging words for us as we end the chapter. But I want you to keep this in mind that everything that's said in Micah 3 is actually preparing us for what we're going to study in the next couple weeks. In Micah 4, and we talked about this at the beginning of this series... In Micah 4, God is going to show us the kingdom that he is going to build. That we've not really lived in a great nation and that there's a better kingdom that is coming. It's called the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's in Israel and it's a thousand year reign of Christ that he's going to have after the rapture and the tribulation. And this kingdom is described in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, Micah tells us about a ruler who's going to come. And it only makes sense, it's only significant to us if we read Micah 3 and we see all the bad rulers and all the things that they did. All of those things highlight for us or they expose to us Micah chapter 5 when we see the perfect king who is going to come and rule over us as believers and his name is Jesus Christ. And so with all of that being said, let's look at Micah chapter 3 together and we'll see three ways God is better than all worldly leaders three ways god is better than all worldly leaders first of all his justice is better do you see that as you look at the first four verses and i said here you heads of jacob and you rulers of the house of israel now we saw this word here at the beginning of michael chapter one and the specific hebrew word that's used it breaks up these different messages the first message is the first two chapters of micah the second message is micah chapter 3 through micah chapter 5 and the last message is micah 6 and 7 so he uses this word again he's starting a new talk or a new message with them and he starts saying here you heads of jacob you rulers these were people that were over the tribes or over the different territories he says you rulers of the house of israel this could be the kings the people who had power the elders of israel and then he asks a question is it not for you to know justice 
It's a rhetorical question, meaning it's not expecting an answer. It's actually a criticism. Isn't it your job to know what justice is? Isn't it your job to know what's right and wrong? And the answer is yes, it was their job. They were people put in power, not only by the different members of the nation of Israel, but if you look at how their government was set up, there were people who were under the authority and supervision of God who did not understand what justice was. Now we'll read later in Micah chapter 3 that it's not just that they didn't understand justice, but that they actually hated justice. They hated what was right. They detested justice. These people, these different offices had been in place in Israel since the days of Moses, but as we look at what's going on in Micah's day and age, and he'll describe some of it for us soon, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. A couple years ago, I did some substitute teaching in the Danville Public Schools where I'm from, and I really liked working with the elementary age kids, and I really liked working with the high school kids, but I did not like working with the middle school kids. Now, you might ask me, well, why did you decide to teach middle school English for a year? Well, I don't really know. But anyways, I spent two days at the middle school system in Danville, one at the fifth and sixth grade middle school, and then one at the seventh and eighth grade middle school. And when I was at the seventh and eighth grade middle school in Danville, I had a teaching aide that I was working with. And he not only was not doing his job of helping them with their homework, he not only was not telling them to put their phones away, but he was actually showing them videos that they were not supposed to watch on his phone. He was talking to them about fights that had been going on in the school, and he was actually giving them ideas on how they could break the rules in the school system. Now, this was this guy's job to enforce the rules, to be a good influence on these kids, and yet he did the exact opposite of what he was supposed to do. I was so flabbergasted, if that's a word. I was so perplexed at what was going on. I didn't even know what to say. It was his job to know what was right. And in a much more extreme way, in a much more real way, it was these leaders' jobs to know what justice was, to do what was right. Notice what else Micah says. You hate the good and love evil. You hate what is good, not just good people or good actions, but God and his word. They hate what is good, and then they love what is evil. Good is being punished, and evil is being rewarded. It's similar to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, when he's talking about probably the same people or at least similar people because they lived during the same time period. <clears throat> and he says, you call evil good and good evil. Does that remind you of any time in history like today? People who call evil good and good evil. People who hate good and love evil. Israel had a social problem. They had a political problem. They had a moral problem in their country. They didn't have people in leadership who knew what was right. Now, in this pervasion of morality and seeing all of this sin and wickedness and injustice that was going on in Israel, it leads Micah to 
give a pretty gruesome analogy. You've probably read it in verses 2 and 3. What he's basically describing is cannibalism, people who are eating other people. He says, who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. And my initial reaction to reading that, as I hope yours is as well, was disgust and it was pretty gruesome and graphic. In fact, I would argue it's one of the most graphic descriptions of sin in the entire Bible. And so I bring up the question, why does Micah use this analogy? And I'll start by saying this. I don't think they were actually cannibals. He's using this as a word picture. I don't think they're actually eating people. We don't really have evidence for that. Um, so why, were, why is Micah talking about this? Well, actually, cutting the skin off of people and the practice that he's describing was something that the Assyrian nation would do, the nation that captured and tortured Israel. They were people that would fillet the skin off of people, and they would do all these nasty things that Micah described. And it was one of the reasons why they were known for being so bad. In fact, Jonah, as he's going to Nineveh, which was the capital, he, in part, didn't want to go there because of these practices, because of what they had been doing to people. And so when Micah brings this up, it's not because the Israelites were cannibals necessarily, but it's because they had sinned and they had been so wicked and evil that they were acting like the Assyrian nation. They were acting like the people that they hated. Now, oftentimes as we read a passage like this or as we read Judges or Genesis, some parts of the Bible that are a little bit more colorful than other parts, we reach the question, why is that in the Bible? Why did the writers include that portion of scripture in your copy of God's word? And the answer is because God wanted it to be there, because the Bible is inspired, because it's God's word, because he inspired them to write it that way. And I would ask a different question to those people who ask that question. Maybe a better question is this. Why do people sin? Why do people break God's law? You see, in every instance where we read something as graphic and as gruesome as this, maybe the question shouldn't be, why is this in our Bible? But how could the people of God sin in such a perverted and graphic way? Ultimately, it's the sin of the people that leads them to these actions. It's not God. It's not God's word. But it's their sinful action that caused them to do all these wicked and awful things. As we read this, we should, I think, feel repulsed and sickened and a little uncomfortable, but feel sick and uncomfortable because of the weight of sin. This is what sin does to people. So notice what Micah says in verse 4. And as you first read this, you may not think it's as big of a punishment, but as we study it together, I hope you see how severe this punishment is. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Imagine this, especially being an Israelite, being a Jewish person. You cry out to the Lord, and for years God has protected you, and he's rescued you. He took you out of the Red Sea from the nation of Egypt and he gave you your own land and you conquered all these different nations and then you read the book of Judges 
And Israel sins against God, they're captured, and then God delivers them. And there's this cycle over and over and over again of God rescuing his people. Yet because they broke God's covenant, it says they would cry to the Lord. They would ask for help, but God would not answer them. It is a scary prospect. It's a scary condition to be in when you cry out to God and God does not answer you. And why is that? Because of their sin. It says he will hide his face from them. In the Old Testament, the face of God looking towards you meant he was going to protect you, he was going to help you. But if he hides his face from you, it means you no longer have God's favor. You no longer have God's help. Ultimately on the cross, when Christ suffered and died for our sins, it says the father turned his face away. It's a sign of rejection. In that moment, you are helpless. You don't know what to do. They will cry to the Lord, but he would turn his face away. Why did all of this happen? Why does this judgment come? Look at the end of verse 4. Because they have made their deeds evil. This is what happens to a nation. This is what happens to a people who turn their back on God. Who make their deeds evil. Who have sinful thoughts and desires and who let them turn into sinful actions. They made their actions and their deeds evil before a holy God. God's justice is perfect, and despite what it may look like this morning, his justice is better than the worldly leaders who are trying to be just. That's why Micah says, isn't it up to you to know what justice is? Shouldn't you love good and hate evil? But instead, they did the opposite. Sometimes we look at this situation and we ask, how could a loving God do this to his people? How could he judge them in this way how could he not answer them because god is a just god because this is what those people deserved because they rejected him and they turned their back on god there's no one in life who just gets a bad rap from god there's no one in life who gets the short end of the stick god has been perfectly fair and just throughout all of time even if we aren't always able to see it. We see what happens when worldly leaders are left in charge of justice and of morality. They mess it up. They sin. But God's justice is better. God's justice, even during this time, even during judgment, is far better than what these worldly leaders were doing. In the midst of a corrupt and an unjust world, we can trust God's justice that God is in control, that God loves us and he's unwilling that any should perish, but that he has been perfectly fair throughout all of time. Secondly, notice in verse 5 that his truth is better. His truth is better. Look with me at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. He's talked about the leaders, the heads of the house of Israel. Now he's talking about the prophets. He says, who lead my people astray. What was a prophet meant to do? They were to be the mouth of the Lord. They were to tell people God's revelation. 
what God said. Remember, they didn't have the completed Bible during that time. They didn't have the full canon of Scripture. So they were to announce to others the messages from the Lord. They were to lead them in a way that God wanted them to go. But yet Micah says from the Lord that these prophets are leading his people astray. They were pointing them in the wrong direction. He says they cry peace when they have something to eat. So people who give them food, who give them money, who give them possessions, they say peace. Everything's going to be fine. Life is going to be good. And then people who don't give them anything, it says they declare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouth. What he's describing is bribery. What he's describing is corruption, not just from Israel's leaders and kings and elders, but from Israel's prophets as well. They were not listening to what God had to say. They were not leading them in the right direction, but they were leading them astray. They were lying to the people. They were bought for whoever had the most money to give them. Notice their punishment. They go from being lying prophets to being blind prophets. In verse 6, therefore it shall be night to you without vision. They won't be able to see anything, maybe not literally, But in the sense of they were seeing and looking at God's message for them, they wouldn't be able to hear anything. It would be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. They wouldn't be able to understand the message from God or the message from anywhere else, to be honest. Wherever they were getting their source of truth, their messages, it would go quiet. They wouldn't be able to prophesy anymore. It says the day shall be black over them. They would not have any source of prophecy anymore. They couldn't do their jobs. This is more than just a hobby, but these were their livelihoods. This is how they lived. And they wouldn't be able to do their jobs anymore. Look at verse 7. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. This is not only frustrating, but it's embarrassing for them as well. They wouldn't be able to do their jobs, do give messages like they were supposed to do. Imagine if I walked up here as we were getting ready to preach, and I just said, we had no sermon today. You can just go home. There's no sermon at all. God didn't tell me anything. I would imagine, hopefully, there would be people that would be kind of upset with me, right? It's my job to preach God's word. So this is what Mike is talking about. These people would have no message from the Lord. They would be disgraced. It says, the seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. For they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Not just in everyday life, but imagine the judgment that's coming down on Israel. And people look to the prophets and say, what do we do? What does God say? But there is No answer from God. These false prophets who were being judged because of their sin against God, because of their lies, because of their corruption, they would have nothing left good to say. Notice, however, Micah compares the prophets to himself in verse 8. 
But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. Now, Micah is not trying to brag. He's not trying to be proud here. But he is comparing them to himself, and he's saying all these prophets have gone the wrong way. They've said the wrong things. They've accepted corruption. They don't understand what justice is. They don't do what's good. But Micah is saying, I am filled with power. He had the Spirit of the Lord. He had the message of God for these peoples. He knew what was just. He had God's power. And what was his job? Well, he says it at the end of verse 8. To declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Micah's job, his responsibility, was to preach the message that God had for Israel. And in this moment, it was a message of judgment. It was a message of justice. Sometimes people don't want to hear truth. People don't want to hear what God has to say, so they make something else up. So that people will like them more. It was true in Micah's day. They didn't want to hear that God was going to judge them. They didn't want to hear that they were doing anything wrong. And so they were lied to by prophets. And they did not believe what Micah had to say. And you know it's true in our day as well. It's been true throughout all of time. A hundred years ago from this last Friday. A preacher named Harry Emerson Fosdick ignited a controversy by preaching a message called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He was preaching against fundamentalism. He denied the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, the resurrection, the future coming of Christ. He wrote this sermon to try to unite people against fundamentalism and to try to spark the church into theological liberalism. It's from this sermon, actually, from maybe not this sermon, but this movement that the IFCA broke off. And we became an organization that was committed to the fundamentals of the faith, to God's word, to the deity of Christ, to the future coming of Christ. Harry, Harry Emerson Fosdick asked the question, though, will the fundamentalists win? Will people who hold to inspiration win will people who believe in the virgin birth and the deity of christ will they survive and you know i hope the answer is yes i know one day it may not seem like it even today but one day we will stand before god knowing that jesus is the son of god that he truly is coming again that he truly did rise from the dead that his death on the cross is what saves us from our sins. So my answer to Harry Emerson Fosdick is not maybe that we are at least looking like we're winning right now, but that there will be a day when all truth will be exposed. And why am I saying this? Because it's been true throughout all of history that people don't want to hear what God has to say. They don't want to believe sound doctrine. It's like what Tim talked about in his Sunday school lesson. They don't want to hold to the truths of Scripture, so they make up their own thing. They make up what sounds good to them. This is what Micah's job was. He was to oppose these prophets. He was to declare to Israel their sin, to Jacob their transgression. This text is a good reminder to us this morning 
that despite what the world and culture says, despite what even other churches say about God's word, that the Bible is the word of God, that God's truth stands. This book tells us God's truth, his message, and it is right and it is true despite what anyone else has to say. There were people in Micah's day that did not believe him, that did not listen to him, that did not want to hear what he had to say. But you know what? Micah didn't care. Micah kept faithful to God's word because he knew God's truth is better. It's better than all the truth that the world would give you, other churches would give you. And so it's a good reminder for us to be faithful and to hold fast to the word of God, to God's truth. And we, may we remember that as a church each and every day. Finally, notice with me, not only is his truth better, but lastly, his leadership is better. His leadership is better. Look in verse 9. <clears throat> Hear this, you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. He calls them to listen again. He calls them to pay attention, these Rulers, And this time it's everybody. It's everybody who has some kind of leadership in Israel. And notice what he says. Who detest justice. This time it's not just that they don't know justice, but they detest justice. They hate it. They are adverse against it. He says, who make crooked all that is straight. We know that God's word is truth. Christ says, sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's straight. It shows us the way we should go. And these leaders were making it crooked. They were making it the opposite. They were pointing people in the wrong way. Israel didn't just have a moral problem. They didn't just have a religious problem. But they had a leadership crisis in their nation. It says in verse 10, Who build Zion with blood. They made the city of God, Zion, the mountain of God, a place of bloodshed, a place of violence, a place of wickedness. In Jerusalem with iniquity, Jerusalem was the city of God, was Israel's capital. And they made it a place of wickedness. It was to be where people came and learned of God and his word. It was to be where God was worshipped and seen as the true God, but instead it was filled with wickedness. Notice verse 11, its heads give judgment for a bribe. The leaders make decisions, they make judgments, not based on what God's word says, but based on who pays them the most. Its priests teach for a price. The people who are studying God's word, the priests who should know what the law says, they were teaching whatever they wanted to just for money. Just whoever paid them the most. And then lastly, it's prophets practice divination for money. They were giving whatever the people wanted to hear to whoever paid the most money. It is a sad condition. There is not a strand of leadership in Israel that was not filled with this corruption. I often hear people say and complain even today about how bad our nation is, about how bad our government is. Imagine being the people of God, knowing that God has blessed you and saved you as a nation of Israel and having corrupt leaders such as this. 
these prophets practice divination for money. And it says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So they're preaching what they know is not right, yet saying God is going to protect us. He is going to save us. He is in the midst of us. He is with us. They were preaching what they knew was not true. So in verse 12, we see this judgment that comes from God. What would God do to the nation of Israel? It said, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. The city of God, the Mount Zion, it would become flat. There would be nothing left on it. It would be plowed as a field. Jerusalem, it says, the city of God shall become a heap of ruins. All the nice buildings and houses and everything would be attacked. It would be destroyed. It would become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house of the Lord, the temple of God, would become a wooded heights. It would be broken down and destroyed. Now notice that word that he uses there, the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's actually an important word as we get into chapter 4. Because in chapter 4, we're going to come back to this mountain, even as we study it next week. And the future kingdom and reign of God is going to be described. It's going to be a better kingdom. God is going to show us how under the rule and reign of Christ, there's a better nation because it has a better king in Jesus. This is the judgment of God, though, at this moment in Israel's history because of their sin. We see that God's leadership is better. We get so frustrated sometimes because of the decisions of men, things that different world leaders will say, things that our leaders say. When we see them turn their back on God, and in one sense we have a right to be frustrated, but this text is a good reminder for us that the only perfect leader is Christ. <clears throat> that God is better than all of these other worldly leaders in our world today. That his truth is better, that his justice is better, that his leadership is better. What Micah is showing us here in Micah chapter 3 is that every level of Israel's leadership was corrupted. And so what Israel really needed was a new leader and a new government and a new kingdom that we'll see in Micah 4 and 5 would come and will still come when Christ returns. But until then, if God is better than worldly leaders, if he is truly better than all these leaders that are described in Micah chapter 3, then what does that mean for us? If God is better than worldly leaders, it means, first of all, and this might be a little surprising, that we can submit to our authority. Well, wait a second. What if our authority is evil or corrupt? Well, yes, they probably will be at some sense. And I'll say now that you should never obey your government if they tell you to do something that is evil, if they tell you to do something that is wrong. <clears throat> Yet if God is sovereign, if God is in control, then we should submit to our authority because it is good, because it's the right thing for us to do. That's not always the easiest thing to hear. It's not always the easiest thing for us to do. But as believers in Jesus Christ, 
Like Paul says to Titus, you can submit yourself to the authorities that God has placed in your life, your government leaders, your workplace managers, your parents, your people in your life. God has put authority in your life. And while he may be a far better leader than they are, we can still submit to the authority that we have over us. If God is better than worldly leaders, number two, we can have hope of a brighter future. Do you ever get frustrated with how the world is going, with how things are shaping out? I know I do. But there's a better end coming. We'll talk about it next week. We should be anxious. We should be excited for the future reign of Christ. That Jesus is coming, and when Jesus comes, he's going to be better than any of the leaders we've seen in this life. We can have hope for a brighter future. You know, we don't know much of what heaven is going to be like, of what it's going to be like to spend eternity with God. But as young adults and I were talking about a couple weeks ago, I know it's going to be better. I know it's going to be better than life here. And some people, I think, wrongly think heaven is just going to be the best things that we enjoyed on earth in heaven. Our four-wheelers or our go-karts or video games and things like that. But we don't know what it's like to worship in the physical presence of God. To see him with our own eyes face to face. And friends, that is a better and brighter existence for us just as people than the best things this world has to offer. I get told all the time, well, I bet you're anxious for Christ not to come back because you want to get married and you want to have children. Well, yes, that's true. But even just to be in the presence of Christ is far better than any of the things that the world has to offer us. For those of us who have lost even loved ones, we mourn them, and it is right for us to mourn and be sad. But do you realize that that, for those who know Christ, that that is the best day of their life? When they see him face to face, to be in the physical presence of God, God is such a better king, he's such a better ruler than anything that this world has to offer us. And so because of all of that, lastly, number three, we can trust him with all of life's problems. I said earlier, the answer to shootings in the world the answer to problems that we face in life is not politics it's not social media wars it's definitely not facebook wars what is the answer it's the gospel it's people who need to know that there is a savior who loves them who died for them who offers them eternal life who offers them more hope than anything that this world could give them what is the answer for school shootings, for problems, for depression in your life, anxiety, all these different emotions that can come up, conflict within your marriage, conflict within your family, the problems of our life, whether they're in our government or they're in our everyday existence as humans, it is God. It is knowing him. It is having a relationship with him. You can trust him when these things happen imagine being an israelite during this time and you've got a corrupt government and now it's being overrun by assyrians and you don't know what's going to happen you can trust god's word that god would preserve the nation of israel that he will bring his future 
kingdom and that it's far better than anything else that this life has to offer. Micah chapter 3 is not an easy text for us to study or to grapple with. In fact, it ends on kind of a depressing note. But friends, I want us to be encouraged this morning to look towards the coming kingdom of God. That's what chapter 4 is about. To look towards Christ's future rule and reign over everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives us as believers. We confess, Lord, that sometimes in life things get difficult. Sometimes it can be easy for us to be afraid, to be depressed over how things are going in our world. But we can trust you. And so, God, help us as a church to do that each and every day. Help us as believers in Jesus Christ to share the good news of the gospel with others, knowing that it is what they truly need. We thank you for the book of Micah and for the encouragements that you give us through it. Help us to respond according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.